sin is often, it's usually not motivated by, I want to get up and do terrible things today. And so we want good things. We want things like love. We want things like a sense of worth. But it's that we reach out in our own strength to try to gain those things for ourselves instead of receiving them from God. It's an impatience to wait on God and saying, we want the kingdom without the king. So it's our reaching out to try to get it on our own. And I think resting in God and His provision and care and love for us and His presence is actually like the way of repentance. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Tish Harrison Warren is an Anglican priest and a writer and one of my favorite people to talk about writing with. Until recently, she had a column in the New York Times. She's also had a column in Christianity Today. Her new book is Advent, The Season of Hope. It's part of the Fullness of Time series, books about each season of the liturgical calendar edited by Esau Macaulay. In this episode, Tish and I talk about waiting and making Christmas weird again. Tish Harrison Warren, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I love being here. I'll <laughs> I'll come every time you ask. It's my it's in my top three favorite podcasts. Well, so. thank you. You say you'll come anytime I ask, but what, I asked you uh, uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, and you said no. So, oh, is that true? It's, no, no, I don't no. believe you. I think you were swamped with your uh, New York Times uh, uh, column. I think you were big timing me. Is is the is the uh, <laughs> colloquial way to put it? No, oh. I'm, I'm just glad you're here now. Well, I, I, in, in my mind, I'll say yes anytime. It must have been some sort of crisis. Oh, I'm sure it was something. Yeah, I, that I'm, I'm not really. Uh, you had a good reason. We, we don't need. We don't need to work this out now. Tish. <laughs> uh, so your new book is uh, Advent: The Season of Hope, and it's part of the Fullness of Time series. So, Fullness of Time series is six or seven books about the the um, the church yep. calendar. Yeah, it's um, me, Esau McCauley, um, and who else? Emily McGowan, Wes, Wesley Hill, a guy named Emilio Alvarez, and then Fleming Rutledge. So six of us took each took uh, one season of the year. It was kind of a sign to me. I mean, Esau called me and said, Lit or Advent, pick one. And so I um, picked Advent. And then um, and so you, they'll, where they're coming out one by one, each book, but then eventually they'll be sold as kind of like a box set. You could theoretically uh-huh. walk through the whole church calendar with them. Are they and, all coming um, out in the next year? I think so. Oh, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Cause I'm not in charge of that, but yeah. I think, and several of them have already come out. Um, oh, okay. so yeah. So, um, uh, so yours that, is Advent. Yeah, and it's been that's a very different because uh, this is about writing a lot. It's a really different process. I've never had, I've never written a book um, where the topic was kind of given to me uh-huh. because you know my other books, Liturgy, The Ordinary Prayer, and The Night, are very kind of self-generated, my own yeah. sort of story and ideas, and um, so it was really different to have a book that was sort of like, hey, can you write on this topic? Um, but Esau's uh, really one of my very best friends in the world. And um, 
So we actually, when we started, we were co-editors of it. And um, then I had a baby and uh, was like, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. And so uh, I backed out. But, uh-huh. but I ended up just being a writer for it. Okay. Now, you you spend a, a this is kind of a, I don't know, would you call it a handbook? Uh, what, how would you describe, what kind yeah. of book is this? Because you you, yeah. do a lot of, you spend a lot of time explaining what Advent is and how it's different from that sort yeah. of, you, it's, it's not just a month of, of looking forward to Christmas and and buying Christmas presents and listening to actually, you know, Anglicans uh, frown on uh, singing and playing Christmas carols before Christmas Day. Is this true? <laughs> Some Anglicans do. <laughs> you you can find Anglican. You can find an Anglican that is believes just about anything. So, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> um, but yeah, so some people are grumpier about it than others, for sure. And uh, and and but yeah, we there is. I mean, in the practice of Advent, there is always a tension of of hold the holding back celebration a little bit until mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's time, and then and then hopefully going. I mean, with that should be coupled like an extreme, uh, joyful, pleasurable whole 12 days of christmas plus epiphany is also a feast day so two weeks of of feasting should follow um unfortunately i mean so if you're curmudgeonly about advent and and you're not equally you know kind of passionate about celebration it just you're just a grump but yeah (laughs) okay okay uh (laughs) give me a the, the the elevator version of um what Advent is, why, um, um, again, how it's distinct from from the way many many of us approach the days before Christmas. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So Advent is a season of preparation. Um, it con- it begins four Sundays before Christmas, and it's. In the East, um, it's often referred to as the, I mean, the Eastern Church, not, you know, <laughs> the Eastern Seaboard. Um, <laughs> it's referred to as Little Lent. Um, uh-huh. So it is akin to Lent. It's a penitential season like Lent. It's a time of repentance. But Advent has a slightly different tone than Lent, um, partly because, you know, Lent is um, really looking at uh, the sufferings of Christ and the temptation of Christ and sin and Advent um, is looking forward to the second coming of Christ, the final coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's also, of course, preparing for the incarnation. Um, and and it's looking forward to the coming of Christ, the final coming of Christ. But it's also, I talk about the three advents of Christ in the book, that it also is a time of looking at our own lives, of where we need Christ to come this year. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because of that, it is a time for repentance, but it's also, I think, a time of longing for healing for um, Jesus to return, and a time of kind of reflection on the year behind us, and looking at even how sin affects, you know, not just our own life, but the kind of systems and structures and um you know, news events of the world. Like, I think it's just look at the New York times right now for the brokenness and violence in the world that we need uh, the Prince of peace to come 
enter into, right? And so um, Advent, it, I, the reason I picked, you know, I, not a season of repentance to call it, but a season of hope is that I would say that hope and longing are kind of the emotional um, kind of timber of, of, mm. of Advent. And, um, but if you're hoping for something, it means it's, you don't have it yet, right? Like yeah. <laughs> if you're, if you're waiting for Christmas to cut, you know, that anticipation of the presence under the tree means you're not sitting around with the presence right now. And so there is this sense of, um, and that's a, a, that's obviously like a, a very light kind of, uh, uh, it's an example of levity, a more profound example maybe when you're struggling with addiction mm -hmm. you are you know hoping to be free entirely of this of this addiction but the recovery process is long and intense and um so i think all of us have places where we're we're hoping but mm -hmm. we're not it's the already not yet you know we're not there yet and uh and advent really captures that liminal kind of space that tension of of jesus has come he came as a baby he lived a life you know he died and was resurrected um and he's coming again and what does it mean for us to wait in the meantime for his yeah. coming which is kind of what advent is all about yeah I, so it's a time of preparation and and the and the practices that go along with that are things like advent reads but also fasting repenting prayer alms giving these are kind of like historic mm -hmm. advent practices mm -hmm. i think it was wasn't until i read fleming rutledge's book about advent a few years ago that the to the extent to which i understood advent i thought it was imagining what it would be like to be waiting for the messiah to be to come along the first time All right mm -hmm. put yourself in the place of the you know the um second temple jews you know who were who were looking forward to a uh, to a time and right. uh, and it was from fleming rutledge's book that i finally understood advent's really about it it's at least as much or more about waiting actually waiting for waiting in hope for the the return yeah historically right. advent was almost entirely about the return of christ it uh -huh. was completely the season of last things is what it'd be called it's it's now sort of both and some of that is a liturgical sh change that you know happened in the last um you know probably three centuries um that and actually was kind of a beautiful ecumenical um i mean we're theologians and folks really kind of came together mm -hmm. to to also bring the incarnation into it. I mean, it would be wrong to say historically the incarnation had nothing to do with it because historically, I mean, it was set up as a as just as Lent is to Easter, Advent is to Christmas. There is something there. But the vast majority of the focus of Advent, if if you can talk about focus in terms of majority, that the clear focus of Advent is um, what is the second coming of Christ. And that especially comes through if you go to a liturgical church because of the scripture readings. The mm -hmm. scripture readings, we don't really get to the sort of like normal 
you know, Mary and Jesus kind of the, the Magnificat, that sort of thing to the fight, to the end of Advent, to uh-huh. the week before, uh, to right towards the end. And so, um, you know, it starts, all the readings are, are kind of these like trippy cosmic, uh, <laughs> prophecies that are sort of the they're not the readings that you like find stenciled on anything you know they're all all the like oh man like uh that they're all they're all about the new heavens new earth and they're all about like the destruction of the wicked and that's what advent readings are all about Mm -hmm. so they don't feel christmasy if you like actually listen to the scripture readings during december it's like man whoever made this lectionary (laughs) <laughs> was like clearly not an American selling, you know, merchandise. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk about something that it had never occurred to me until I read it in your book, how odd it is that what I, Isaiah says in repentance and rest is your salvation. It never occurred to me to think about what strange bedfellows repentance yeah. and rest are. You, yeah. you did such a good job in this book of talking about wait you know the 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 value of waiting as opposed to striving mm-hmm. and um and you say i'm not quoting i'm paraphrasing um the call to repentance that it's not a call to get busy or try harder it's a call to step back and to pay attention um and repentance and rest are both or certainly repentance and waiting are, are two very important themes in in Advent. Um, and so, I, I, as you say, repent, repentance and rest at, at first blush seem like strange bedfellows. Can you say more about why they, as it turns out, they, they're, they partner up pretty well mm-hmm. after all? Yeah. Well, to be totally honest, this is something that I am still working out. I feel like in my own life, I don't have this figured out. I, I would say kind of um, a chief thing that I sort of think about, wrestle with on a pretty, you know, weekly or daily basis is how this fits. Mm-hmm. Um, because to me, especially kind of in the Baptistic um, world I grew up in, Repentance had a lot to do with kind of the rigor of doing better, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> willing yourself, willing yourself to like get better. Um, whereas rest seems like, you know, give yourself a break, like get, you know, take a, <laughs> take a breather. And yeah. that just seems so different to me than repentance. Um, but I think it's a, I have a failure to understand what repentance is. I think, um, I talk about in the book, uh, this quote that repentance is rethinking the world from the ground up, meaning, um, it's reorienting our lives, not around our own self with even our own efforts to get better, but around God and the work of God and what God is doing. And so, um, I think that even in religion, <laughs> With religious stuff, we can become kind of functionally atheistic. We can, yeah. I, I, I'll just, I had a conversation today with my husband about, um, we're part of this, we are leading this kind of little church plant and talked about how I, you know, I believe I would proclaim this is a work of God, 
But when it really comes down to it, I think this is work of me and I need to get better so that this happens so that I do this. And he said, you know, you're functioning like an atheist that if something's going to happen in this world, it's us doing it. It's our own strength. It's our own muscle. And I think that can include, you know, if we're going to get better, if we're going to, we're going to love better then it's sort of us mustering that. And I don't want to discount the place of will. I do think, obviously we're not robots and we can make choices at the same time. I think the places in my life I need repentance the most don't tend to be, um, you know, I keep leaving out dirty dishes and I need to be more careful about, you know, washing them or whatever. Mm -hmm. They tend to be these like really, um, (laughs) sort of deep places in my soul that are so fearful and neurotic and um and and committed to my own way or doubtful that that I get to the place where I I think real repentance often is like Lord I don't even know how I got here I don't even know how I ended up sort of painting myself into this corner Mm. where I can't get out of it unless you come and rescue me you know I'm stuck uh my I think of my my little boy all the time. He has this very small um, kind of crack between his bed and his wall that he loves to burrow himself into. <laughs> I don't know why. But every now and then he'll just be like, stuck, mama, stuck. And I think like at that point, he can work real hard to get out, but it might just make it worse, you know? And mm-hmm. he, what he needs is me to come and rescue him. He needs for me to unstick him, which is why he's saying stuck. And I think that's repentance. I think it's oftentimes us saying, you know, stuck. I'm to someone who loves us. Yeah. I'm stuck. <laughs> and I don't know how I even got here and I don't know how to get out. But it's not just a matter of will at this point. It is I need rescue. I need to be remade. I need to see kind of how much I actually can't just clean myself up here. And I need um Emmanuel, right? I need God with us to come and and be with me and unstick me. So um, I think when you see that, you you see how it can be a posture of rest of mm-hmm. instead of my own striving, I'm going to actually rest in what God is doing in my life. And um, you know, I think that I think sin is often. <laughs> Mo- it's usually not motivated by I want to get up and do terrible things today. Yeah, yeah. It's that we want good things. We want things like love. We want things like um, uh, safety or a sense of worth. But it's that we reach out in our own strength to try to gain those things for ourselves instead of receiving them from God. It's an impatience to wait on God and saying, um, you know, <laughs> we want the kingdom without the king, right? We want the we want the good thing, but not have to wait on God to get it. Yeah. We want to be like God, like in in the garden, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be like God without having God, without mm-hmm. having to deal with the actual God, right? Yeah. And so, it's not that God doesn't want us to be like God. It's just that 
it is a we can't be like God without a process of union with Christ, right? Yeah. Union with God. Yeah. So it's our reaching out to try to get it on our own. And I think resting in God and his provision and care and love for us and his presence is actually like the way of repentance, not yeah. just I'm going to kind of scrub myself clean. Mm. Because if you do, you get these very religious people that are committed to their own kind of virtues, which we, you know, you're, so you and I are both, have we talked about this? We're both big fans of Flannery O'Connor. Mm -hmm. We wrote a book about it, which I own. My daughter's name is Flannery after Flannery O'Connor. Um, so huge Flannery fan. My husband actually on All Saints Day, we each stood up in church. Everyone stood up and like told a story about a saint and his, his saint was Flannery. Uh, <laughs> and, but you know, my favorite Flannery O'Connor story is Revelation. Yeah. And it's um, this picture of someone who, uh, if if repentance is just about sort of getting better on our own or being better on our own, we end up uh, kind of trusting in ourselves. And my favorite line of Revelation is when uh, Miss Turpin and her crew are walking into heaven. It says, even their virtues are being burned away, yes. right? Oh. Um because what we're called to is is rest and um so and not trying to build this kind of religious uh self-righteousness on our own yeah so one thing we discussed before we started recording is that you would you you were hoping we would talk about writing and not just about advent and so maybe this is a moment uh that we can make a, a little turn in the conversation these this idea of resting versus striving um what does that do, does that have anything to do with the way you think about writing the way you you do the work is it i don't want to you know i don't want to cheapen these deepest of theological principles by you know let's talk about the the uh <clears throat> how what are the practical applications for your writing life um but so so I'm leaving you to talk about this in a way that doesn't just cheapen it down to some tips and tricks for uh, for writing better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Well, first of all, I part of the reason I was like, let's talk about writing is because I love to talk about writing. But also, I really love to listen to Jonathan Rogers talk about <laughs> writing. Um, you gave a talk years ago at, uh, at is it called Hutchboot, the Rabbit Room Gathering, uh, on yeah. Writer's Blog still to this day, one of my favorite talks I've ever heard. And uh, so you're great to talk to about writing. And I love to talk about writing. So uh, I, for me, this can't cheapen it because writing is so much of what I do in my daily life. <laughs> well, not right now, because I'm on sabbatical. Uh, so I am resting from writing. But it that um, that all my spiritual life kind of has to be worked out and how it applies to this profession of yeah. writing, because yeah. otherwise uh, hours and hours and hours of my day seem to have nothing to do with the faith. Right. Yeah, right. So um, it's been interesting that you talk about you. So you're saying, how do these principles of kind of rest versus striving have to do with writing? And and let's just say like art, art more generally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, do you hear that? That's my dog. He's no. like, okay, sorry. We can hopefully edit that out. <laughs> my dog's being loud. Uh, but I've been thinking a lot about that because I, ha I 
wrote a lot. You know, I wrote every single yeah. week for the New York Times. How long two, was that? How long did that last? Oh, you're about to say, I'm sorry. For two years. It was yeah. two years. And um, just about weekly for two years. So it was a huge amount of writing. And in the middle of that, I also wrote this Advent book. So it was for me, uh, prior to my my uh, gig at the Times, I would publish um, about 12 pieces a year in various uh-huh. outlets, magazines, that sort of thing. And then I did some books on top of that. But um, but going from 12, 12 to 15 a year to, yeah. you know, 50, 48 a year um, mm-hmm. was, a, was a lot. And um, I hear a lot in writing circles. Uh, I have a lot to say about this, actually. I'd say a couple of things. There's the craft part, and then there's the sort of like self-promotion hustle of this. I think the craft part, I've heard a lot of things like, you know, write every day, writers write, don't take breaks, that sort of thing. And I know that could be right for certain seasons. I absolutely believe sometimes it's just like button chair, sit down. I didn't, I think Walker Percy wrote three hours a day or something like that every that day. Right. And, Planner um, did. Yeah, she did. And, and I think that's good. Uh, early on, like very early as a new writer, I met a Vanderbilt guy who teaches creative writing and I don't even remember his name. Um, but I remember asking him cause he, he has books out and was kind of a successful writer. And was it Tony was early? Really, you about Tony early? He lives in East Nashville. That sounds like he lives in East. Anyway, I'm sorry. Okay. It's probably, probably Tony early. The name Tony sounds really familiar. I mean, I think his name was Tony. So that's probably him. But I remember because he was so much farther into the career than I was. And I asked him, do you write every day? Kind of, I had very small kids at the time. And this was sort of me feeling, I think, insecure about not writing every day. And he said, I don't write every year. (laughs) 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 Which was... Um, but I think that was good for me to hear early on because he still, you know, is an impressive writer. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying go give writing up, but I will. Mary Carr, she posted this, this in the last two weeks of on Facebook, but she said, um, she said, as writing gets harder, go at it softer. Yeah. The instinct to attack harder comes from fear. But that just pours animal energy into the sacred place. Move slower, take more breaks, breathe deeper, honor your insides, notice stuff, celebrate doing it at all. Um, and then she said, you know, she says that as someone who's, she said she's stalled like a bad car over the past two weeks in writing. And her name is Mary Carr. So it was kind of a pun. But oh, the- <laughs> um uh, but I, did I, I get that? Did I hear that phrase right? You, she, she says something about pouring animal energy into the sacred place. Is that what? Is that, yeah, she said amazing. that. She said if we attack harder, that comes from fear. That just pours animal energy into the sacred place. And I think um, I love celebrate doing it at all. I think um, I think there's something to that. You know, I think um, this is the tricky part, and I tell this to new writers all the time. There are some times when you feel like you've hit a wall with writing 
And the thing to do is just keep at it, like just keep going. And there are some times when you hit a wall with writing and the thing to do is to take a break, take a week off, read other people, get some sleep, Mm -hmm. do some yoga, like (laughs) eat some broccoli, you know, like just take care of yourself. And knowing the difference between those times is really, really hard. And I don't think I've fully figured that out. And if you have advice on how to know the difference, that that would be great. But I think it's worth not deciding on your own. I think it's worth having community to help you with that. But but yeah, it's hard because I think sometimes you have to press in when it's hard. And sometimes that sign is that 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 blockage kind of is a sign to kind of slow down, you know, that um that you might be kind of treading on territory that is worth taking more time on. So um, I I loved what Mary Carr said because I feel like it's so different than what I've heard from a lot of writers. What I've heard from a lot of writers is just keep going, just keep doing it. And I, I think there can be a compulsion there that isn't good. So finding that sweet place where discipline and grace meet Mm-hmm. is just kind of the quest of my whole life. So that I think there's on one hand there there's can be sort of um just fearful avoidance of writing or laziness or um or and but on the other hand there can be a um this compulsive sort of animal energy as she says yeah. like this clinging to it and I think um Having to navigate that is tough. I'll also just say on this sort of like, I I think there's a tendency in publishing now, um, including Christian publishing, to say, be out there, be out there, be out there, get attention at all times, speak on every subject, tweet on every subject, get more followers, kind of hustle, hustle, hustle. And that I think is bad for the soul. I think it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. I think it makes you a worse writer, um, which is ironic because I think people are doing that because they want to get published. But it sort of is like it's like smoking a pack of day in order in order to become a cardiologist. Like it feels like the thing you're doing is actually undermining the work itself. Yeah. And and Andy Crouch is my guru on this and constantly challenging me that, you know, if you have a, if you make something good and beautiful and true, something we're saying, a book, an essay, it will find a, a place. It will find an audience. And so um, the, the sort of pressure to constantly be building that is actually putting your energy in the wrong place. And you should trust the work enough to do, what it what it did. I, Dallas Willard has this quote. It's kind of the theme of my sabbatical, but he says something like, "Never worry about having some. I'm sorry. Never worrying worry about having a place to speak. Worry about having something to say." Yeah, that's good. And I I think that's kind of um, in the industry right now. There's there's an exhausting push to always have a place to speak to kind of always be speaking but i think we need to wait until we really have something good and useful to say um and that takes again it's this place of 
it is where like discipline and grace kind of come together. And that's, that's a hard place to find sometimes, but. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's, it's so important to figure out ways to leave room for grace in your, in your work to, to not expect to be able to, to, to reach a point where you realize you're not, you're not brilliant enough to be brilliant enough to write what you want to write. Mm. Um, and mm. the, the most, um, I mean, I, you know, I think of myself as being pretty good at, at writing, but, but the, the, the things that, that I, that I really feel like are the best, the, the, those moments in the things I've written that feel like they're the best, they don't feel like they're exactly coming from inside my brain. If they, yeah. it felt like yeah, I, totally. you know, I was, you, you're, you're sort of creating space in which you're creating a framework in which um, grace can come in and, and finish off, you know, finish the, finish the sheetrock and do the painting. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what, what the, the right. is. but, um, and, and I wonder if that somehow helps us know, you know, when to push harder and when to, to not mm-hmm. push harder. I, I don't know. And, and, and I just today, I, we're recording this in November and this is this release in December, but, but um, my Tuesday letter that I wrote today was to, reflecting on something that, that um, Dana Glyer said at Hutchmoot to, in a conversation that wasn't a conversation with me of secondhand that I got it, but I, but I love it. She said, the idea you're looking for may be about the 50th idea to present itself to your imagination. But if you're not hospitable to those first 49 ideas, you're not going to get the 50th one. Hmm. And I think that language of hospitality might be helpful in navigating some of these questions that, that you're talking about, where you say, you know, you have to, to um, strike a balance between discipline and grace, but it's hard to know when, you know, when to push a little harder and when to, and when to, step back and, and observe or, or, or look. And that idea of being hospitable to those ideas that aren't necessarily the best ideas, that feels helpful to me mm-hmm. um, because there's a certain amount of, um, I, I guess another word for it is being respectful of, of that the 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 early drafts the early work that's not good enough yet yeah and and so continuing to turn that over there's a way to to turn that over that's more like a cow chewing its cud than it's like somebody pushing harder and harder yeah yeah and it also honors the notion of process that things yeah. form by process and that that's not always linear or certainly it is almost never like um efficient right like yeah. the most efficient it could mm-hmm. be there's it's like that you know Wendell, very famous Wendell Berry poem the mad farmers uh what is it manifesto. the mad Far- what manifesto mad yeah that's it that says you know be like a fox that makes more tracks than necessary some in the wrong direction I yeah. think that's honoring the process right that that's and that is the case with our work there's a process there. And um, there's just not a writer who's done this for, you know, I still feel like pretty new writer and I've been doing this maybe as a pretty 
you know, where I'm getting, where I'm doing it often and a lot or writing kind of daily and Mm -hmm. I'm starting to get paid for it for maybe 11, 12 years. Um, But I feel like, um, I feel like I don't know any kind of writer who's been doing it for a, a longer season that doesn't have like, significant periods of feeling lost in their mm-hmm. vocation, like feeling like, I don't know what I'm writing. I don't know what I should do next. I'm tired of my own voice. I'm trying to find yeah. my voice, like figuring that out. And, and part of this is, I mean, writing is like, why do we do this to ourselves? I mean, this is partly why writers struggle. Writers tend to struggle a lot with depression and a lot with um, alcoholism and all of this. Cause I think there is this sort of like, what I think that, I think it's hard in the middle of it to sort of, there's always periods of dryness or, or, um, writer's block or whatever. Um, but that is part of the process. What I mean is like, without those periods, you don't write the book that comes next, which is often really good or really yeah. needed, you know? And I think, um, it's the same. What I'm saying is all of this, I think, can be a metaphor for the spiritual life of um, there are these times and if you're going to stay a Christian for any length of time where you're just like, I don't know what's true. I don't know what's real. I'm struggling. This feels hard. But honoring the process of that, that even sanctification, you know, this goes back to repentance. Sanctification isn't this linear, efficient thing that yeah. it's uh, sanctification. I think m- many of you will know those that word. If you don't, it just is becoming more holy, which just becoming more of, of yourself in God, I think, becoming yeah. more of who you've been, who you've been formed to be. Um, but it's not that's not a linear kind of efficient thing and and so there are these times where it just feels like what is happening and i'm disoriented and i'm full of doubt and i'm full of angst and full of struggle but it's that time's not wasted like it all ends up being part of the redemption and of who we're becoming and um it feels like the key is to figure out how not to um just totally uh wipe out in the middle of that to keep going and to be patient with the process right like but there's something here about honoring honoring process both in craft and in in the spiritual life i think that if you don't honor the process and the inefficiency of the process then you're going to constantly be frustrated because you feel like you've got to make it um like you've just got to muscle it out and it it's just literally impossible to do all of that. Like, I think, yeah. um, yeah. What was your, this is when you talked about writer's block so many years ago, I don't actually remember what you said was the, what was your solution? Did you keep going or did you back off of it? Um, or some I, combination? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the question is in the years, since that was a long time ago that I gave that talk. I, I'm just now remembering what talk you're talking about. And it it really came down to um understanding. I, I got an email from somebody that says, Hey, I kind of, you know, I I I need this book. This would this would mean something to me to have this book that you've are now overdue on. 
And um, I mean, a reader, somebody who read my other books. And mm-hmm. and that was a moment in which I um, sort of pro- pulled out of this whirl hole of, you know, of, of this writer's block being my personal tragedy, as mm. it were. Um, I were the victim of, of writer's block. And instead was able to, I mean, I was able to go into the cave to do that lonely work because I knew there was somebody just outside the cave who was going to benefit mm-hmm. from what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and That's that was point. really how I pushed through. And, and there, there was a joy that, that came back in that had entirely mm-hmm. fled. Now, yeah. <clears throat> having said that, you know, once I knocked out that book, it's not like I was now free to just write out of joy. Yeah, right. Uh, it, it was more a case of uh, I got that one. That's how I got through that one thing. And mm. um, but so much of it does have to I mean, for me, has been um, not sort of disappearing in my own belly button. Um, you know, you, you get into that cycle of uh, of as you start to think of this as your problem, then there's this victim thing that, that can, that it, for me has been known to kick in and it just becomes sort of a, a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything that can pull me out of that. And it usually is knowing that somebody somewhere um, would appreciate what mm-hmm. I can do. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and a lot of it is just coming to terms with, with the fact that, um, uh, there's there's nothing however this writing project goes it's not actually going to determine my self-worth or my worth to anybody else or that there there are people who love me and there's a god who loves me whether this thing i'm writing turns out to be good or bad and mm-hmm. um and sort of so much of it comes down to resizing the stakes to something that, that actually is is reasonable, you know, the, the stakes for what I'm, I'm doing here, which is not, it's not going to be, I'm going to change the world. Right. And it's also not going to be nobody in the world cares. Somebody yeah. cares. Probably not that many people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And let's just write to them and see what happens. Right. Um, yeah. It's a, that's a hard thing for, I think any artist is, um, there is something where we don't do this for ourselves. I, I mean, I know Emily Dickinson, right, wrote poems and put them in her desk. But for most of us, yeah. we're, we're doing this to communicate something to someone and to be okay with that, with the, the sort of re, um, surrendering the results of that. Yeah. And saying, okay, I'm speaking to someone. I'm not trying to be remembered throughout the annals of history. I mean, I think I, well, I'll just speak for myself. I think I get tripped up on any time I'm thinking about my legacy or my future, what will outlive me or if, you know, (laughs) I think that gets real dangerous for me. And I think um, there is a sense of being able to just um, play at this, which does bring back the same kind of posture of, that we, I, I don't mean to keep circling back to this sort of posture of rest thing, but it does seem like there is this kind of posture of what you were saying is if the results, if if the if the stakes are low, then you can 
grow. You can create, yeah. you can learn, you can get it wrong. You can, yeah. um, you can kind of be in process in a way that if the stakes are high or if you're not loved or if this determines your worth, um, everything's just going to be really fraught, you know? Yeah. I get, I mean, of course people bring this up all the time as an example in, in creative work, but it's true is when I see my kids, you know, run off and play, um, on, you know, on the playground or my son is super into drawing and painting right now, um, on everything, on every surface, including his own <laughs> body. Um, but he just loves it. And he wants, he absolutely wants to share it. It is not a self-indulgent thing in the sense that he's yeah. constantly coming up and saying, mom, look what I drew. Mom, I made this orange. Like I, I painted this orange or mom, I did this. So he's trying, he's wanting to show it and he's wanting me to say, oh, it's beautiful. That's so good. That's so great. Uh, you can see I'm <laughs> yeah. my art wall behind me. I have yeah. his paintings hung up. But um, but there's not a sort of fearful, oh, you know, mom, I got to like make her like me by doing this. There's, yeah. there's just it, it frees him up to be able to create without the stakes being so, so high. And uh, and yeah, so there is something of resting in actually God's love for us and who we are in our worth. That then frees us up to be able to do things and share them with other people. And it be okay, um, mm. but it, it is hard. It's it's hard to find that sort of emotional safety in art mm -hmm. making. Yeah. That is hard, and that yes. that's I would say a huge part of the work of writers in general, and maybe specifically people of faith that are writers or, or art makers in any way is is finding emotional safety enough to do our work well yeah all right we're going to, have to wrap it up there next time and you come on we got to talk about how you find that emotional safety um so be be figuring that out okay. and i'll Let's, be asking you all about you, it can you figure that out too we'll we'll both think <laughs> on it okay great all right tish harris and warren thank you so much for being here it's always such a pleasure to talk to you yeah, it's so, so good to be here. And um, check out the Advent book, please, That's, everybody. I, I, I hope many, many people do. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.